You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. The Lunar New Year holiday and celebrations in Taiwan have just ended, but another national holiday will soon be here, the 228 Peace Memorial Day. But what is 228? It's been 75 years, and as you'll hear from my guest on today's show, it's still a touchy topic. And frankly, it's not something that can be easily boiled down to a single date, February 28, 1947. The first thing to know is that 228 is actually a misnomer, because the events thought to have ignited the conflicts that led to the massacring of tens of thousands actually happened the night before on February 27th. 1947. Also, the tensions had already been mounting for quite some time before then. Two years earlier, in 1945, at the end of World War II, the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang, had fled from China to Taiwan, bringing with them the Republic of China framework. On the night of February 27th, tobacco monopoly bureau agents tried to confiscate contraband cigarettes from a four-year-old woman and brutally knocked her out. When an angry crowd gathered in protest, one of the agents fired a shot into the crowd, killing a bystander. Within 24 hours, the incident had escalated into bloody violence and massacres. Under the authoritarian Chiang regime, what followed was 38 years of martial law and white terror era. Anyone could be disappeared, executed, or worse, for just saying or doing the wrong thing, or for what was seemingly wrong in the eyes of authorities. The people of Taiwan were horrified and terrified. Generations dared not speak of 228. 228 was absent from high school textbooks until relatively recently. Denial, distrust, suppression, and the passage of time have made it hard for many to come to terms with 228. What I've presented, of course, is not the entire story, but it's meant to provide you with some basic background information for the discussion in this episode of Talking Taiwan. If you were previously unfamiliar with 228, I hope that this has piqued your interest and that you do some further research for yourself on this topic. History is not about an isolated date like 228, but understanding its deeper context, significance, and repercussions. Since it's the 75th anniversary of the 228 massacre, we will be dedicating two episodes to this topic. In this first episode today, my guests Weiwei Chang, Michi Fu, Suan Kuo, and Josephine Pan represent different backgrounds and generations of Taiwanese women. Each will share their personal experiences and perspectives related to 228 and their thoughts on the societal impact of 228. Next week, Michi and Suan will return to discuss their work with 228 survivors and their families through the Transitional Justice Commission. Special thanks to Michi for her help in assembling all the guests for these two episodes. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by the Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese-American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. 
The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese Americans. Established in 1986, the foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchanges between the Taiwanese American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. To learn more about TUF, visit their website, tufusa.org. Now, without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Hi, Hi thanks for having us. Hi. I wanted to talk about how each of us heard about 228 and give our personal perspective on that. Josephine. Okay, yeah. Um, I actually, my family are Hakka and pretty conservative until much later. And I knew, I, I learned there was a reason for that. But my family, my father always talked about something that he didn't like KMT, but you know, we don't we don't really talk about I but we we love society, we live happily, but then I always think that my father wasn't very pleased, you know, about KMT until when I was sixteen, high school, first year of uh, senior high, I attended this Jiu Guo Tuan, you know, the uh one of the students uh, program during the winter break we took a ship to Penghu, another island, small island. And then we came back and then everybody became good friends. And six months after we decided to have a reunion. And then when we were together, half of the people didn't show up. And the organizer just told us that um, half of the people didn't receive the postcard he sent because he, he used postcard and he put down, dear 228 friends, our ship was number 228. So he was called to the police station and then questioned about what was his intention and blah, blah, blah. And then so he came to this reunion and some of us received them. Some of us did not receive because it was conf confiscated. So he just said, do you guys know about 228? And that's how we started um, talking about it. And I went home and I checked with my grandparents, my parents. Then they started telling us about the story. And my grandmother was even related to the, this uh, Zhang Qilang, who the father and three sons, and two sons and the father were killed from oh, Hualien. Wow. Yeah, that's how yeah. I first learned it yeah, wow. when I was 16. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Later on, you know, we could share more, but my parents and my family are all very supportive of all the events and everything there mm -hmm. I think we were somehow happy that this came out and the and, and they could share this with us well that's great that they were able to do that yes I know it hasn't always been so easy for families to talk about this my family Fortunately, we, we fight a lot, but political opinion, we actually oh, were all the same, yeah. and we never oh. fight on it. Thank God. <laughs> we don't fight about that. Yeah, we, we were all very, very similar on our political point of views. Uh -huh. So would somebody else like to share? Thank you, Weiwei. I was uh, born and raised in Taiwan during the uh, martial law uh, era, and um after I finished my uh, university education, I came to the United States when I was about 21 years old. That's about 1978. 
that is when I start hearing about two two eight, which I was never taught, or nobody in my family discussed the issue at all. This is Michi, and my experience is more similar to Weiwei's than Josephine's. I found out about two two eight as a young adult, and not through my family. So it seemed fictional. Because I felt like that would have been something that I would have grown up hearing, since my parents、mm. were very clear with me that I was Taiwanese. Interesting.、Mm-hmm. Okay. It wasn't until I was a mid-aged adult, though, that I started to do a lot of self-study, and、um, I was limited. I am limited to reading books in English, so I'm still educating myself through looking at oral and and written histories primarily. Great, thank you for sharing that, Zulan. Okay,、um, I don't remember the first time I heard about two two eight or even know about what that was.、Um, I remember growing up, my grandfather was very very active in、um, any social movement. If we had any kind of rally or demonstration, he would go, and then、uh, he was at his.、Uh, Late seventy already, seventies already, or early eighties.、Um, I just couldn't understand why he was so devoted to all this、uh, movement. But one time he、uh, fell during a rally, and then so was hospitalized. And then my mother,、uh, living in Taichung, my grandfather was in Taipei, is about two and a half hours away. She rushed to the hospital trying to take care of him, and.、Um, Growing up, we had a, a nanny. We had a very a old lady who who was our nanny. So、um, my mother's had to be in the hospital with my grandfather for for like two weeks or so, and then so the nanny、uh, was taking care of us. And one time, one day, one night, I was very very、uh, lonely and trying to like you know say where's mom and where's mom. And then the nanny said, Oh, she went to take care of your grandfather. And I said, "Why grandfather needs to, you know my mom's help?" And then you know all these things. And if he, I I one time said that if he wasn't in trouble, my mother would have been with me right now. You know, wouldn't have to be taking care of him. And the old nanny said, "Oh, you know why he's in trouble?" And I said, "No, I don't know." And then so the old nanny said, "Well, he was involved in something. Oh, something that we cannot say. You know, something in the history." Uh, that was dangerous. So that's it. You know, you you never ask about this、uh, forever. You know, just、uh, <laughs> pretend you don't know anything. Because we were told we cannot say anything about this period of time. So、mm. the na- nanny did not go to school. So、um, that's a sort of like a peasant's view.、Um, mm-hmm. You cannot say anything about this period. So, but of course, growing up, and then、uh, I think I like way way. I really, really learned about two two eight after、uh, when I went to the United States. Even though my my family kind of uh, uh, say it here and there and put pieces by pieces, but I couldn't really comprehend that much until、um, really when I went to the United States and then I read all the books and things like that, and I fully knew about it. And of course. Then when I know about it, I consulted with my parents and and found out that my grandfather was actually very involved in two two eight. Um, and later on, he was put in jail、uh, as a white terror political prisoner. So, oh wow, thank you for sharing that. It's very interesting. This has been such a taboo subject over time. For me, I'm not exactly sure 
when I heard of it either. I don't even recall if my family talked about it, but I do know that certainly when I went to college, if I had heard about it before, I learned about it more then because I was very involved with Taiwanese American students organizations and we talked about a lot of these things. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like for Tsuan, um, Josephine and Weiwei, it definitely wasn't taught in school or covered at that time. Wondering if you guys could also elaborate on what you just said and talk about how has learning about 228 impacted you and your family personally? When I went to college, it just happened to, uh, it just happened to that uh, I, I went to this uh, cultural college that uh, the department is uh, in, uh, labor relation and most of my teachers were attorneys, were lawyers, and including few of them were actually uh, social movement activists. But although they didn't really, they couldn't say anything because, you know, there's student spies in every class. So they never talk about anything during the class. But they actually uh, um, really, really influenced me after I came to the United States. The same thing. I came, you know, to the United States after I graduated. And um, one of my professors, which was Yao Gabun, Yao Jiawen, he was arrested and put in jail for uh, seven and a half years during the 1979 Meidi um, Dao incident. And the Formosa so, incident. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. The Kaohsiung, Kaohsiung incident. The Kaohsiung incident was also known as the Formosa incident because it was organized by the Formosa magazine. It was a public celebration of International Human Rights Day that took place on December 10, 1979. But it ended violently with a police crackdown and the arrest of several prominent opposition leaders known as the Kaohsiung Eight. It was a major event in Taiwan's path to democratization. And then I think, of course, I, I've been to the United States for so many years. So one year I went back and he was already out. So when during our class reunion and then, you know, we started chatting and then he I started organizing uh, events for him to the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think from there and through him and I, I, I learned about my other professor, Dang Geisheng, Chen Jisheng. He was the uh, he was in the committee. He was our dean, and then another professor, which is Wang Shirong, Rex Wang, which, who was the um, ambassador to Switzerland during Abian the time. They were mm -hmm. actually were all very very involved with the Taiwan's uh, social movement. You know, pro. Taiwan independence movement. So in our later, actually, I became very close to all of them after they, uh, after I graduated, after I came to the United States. You know, Professor Chen come, uh, used to come every summer. So we would spend like every weekend talking to him for four or five hours. Professor Wang too, uh, we, we, we keep very close relationship. And Professor Yao, whenever he came, I organized his speeches, you know, for him and everything, and through them, I, I just I learned a lot. Really, I was again very blessed to have all these mentor and gave giving me all these insight, informations, and then how they were looking at it. And um, I I need to bring up a book too that authored uh, authored by Li Qiao. I don't know mm -hmm. if you heard about it. He's also a Hakka. He wrote a book. 
in in Chinese in Mandarin is the Yuan. Mai is Mai Zhang the Mai Yuan Wang the Yuan. But if you pronounce that in Taiwanese, it's Taiwan Taiwan. Oh. Tai means you know berry, mm -hmm. and then mm. uh, Yuan oh. means uh, Yuan Wang the Mejiang Zhan. Yuan Wang just um, it, it's just like you were you were falsely uh, falsely accused. Okay, so this he wrote this book and it it, it also helped me just to open my eyes in in the um. In in a lot of articles, you could see that the O228 incident and it lasted five days and then killed 600 people. I think the result, the outcome of that, it was the white terror and martial law. And mm -hmm. actually, at least 30, 40 people were arrested or even killed, and nobody knew. Mm -hmm. My father was in medical school. He said he got to survive. Because you know all the elites were captured, mm -hmm. were put in a jail, and a few of his good friends were gone. He he wow. he says the only reason why he survived because he was mm -hmm. the chairman for entertainment committee, Kang Le Gu Zhang. So he wasn't oh. those uh, scholar type, you know. Hmm. And then he said he was lucky to be able to. Stay. And and I think the most is the white terror, and I think. Until now, a lot of uh, my uncles or relatives, they still under that shadow. They don't want to talk about it. I told them I've been involved with all these, you know, events and concerts, even concerts, just come to the concert. They mm -hmm. just keep quiet. They don't want wow. to get involved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting point. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more, that it's not just 228, that 228 is not just a date in history, but that it led to the white terror era and a lot of subsequent things that happened. Weiwei? When I started doing research on 228, and I read a little bit about the incident itself, and regarding the personal account from the victim and their family, I didn't... Actually, I, I was very nervous uh, to learn about it. So it, it, it's, I wait until when I feel like I'm mature enough to read about it. So that's when I was around 50 years old. <laughs> and so I started reading the 228 uh, victims and families account of the instance. So I read a, a lot of biographies on that. So I have a, a more complete picture about how does it influence the Taiwanese at the time, which I had no idea at all. Because when I was growing up in the martial law era in Taiwan, actually for me, it's a very peaceful time of my own life. Um, and I did not know there's a political prisoners, even we are very aware of all the slogan about anti-communist, but I did not know in Taiwan we actually have political prisoners who has been put in the prison for ridiculous reason, just for owning a book or passing out a book or just talk to somebody about it, which is very shocking to me. And, um, and after that, uh, I did try to talk about the tutorial with my family and uh, fortunately my sister is 
will listen to me. But my brother and my father, they have very um, strong response. So basically, just they won't listen to it. And so that's what happened to my family. Thank you for sharing that. My perspective is also very similar to Weiwei's. I think when I first heard about it, denial was a very strong and effective reaction. And when I was confronted with having to examine it more closely, it infuriated me. It not only made me feel sad, disappointed, and somewhat hopeless, but I think the anger helped to fuel me to educate myself and to become more curious and active about this topic. It also served as a divisive point of contention between family members and community members. It became clear to me that it was a very uncomfortable topic that was still taboo in my family. And folks that I thought were previously apolitical suddenly seemed to have a very strong feeling about this event in our history. And it still remains a mystery to me why we are so silent about it, other than there's um, pain and suffering just associated with thinking about it for some of my family members. I totally concur with what Michi say, because uh, to even a lot of families or friends don't talk about it among themselves, but actually it always uh, triggers a very strong response. And that's one of the reasons I don't really talk to my family about the event, because otherwise we won't be able to speak to each other at all. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think it is a very divisive thing because I think when I initially learned about it, to me, it was always framed as a conflict between the so-called local Taiwanese and mainland Chinese. Thank you for sharing that, Weiwei. Uh, Tuan? Um, this is Tuan. So what does it mean to me uh, now about 228? I think for my uh family, I think we go through, uh, we go through periods, I guess, um, uh, whenever there's maybe a big event in Taiwan, maybe a election year or something, then we talk about the history and then everybody will try to get together. For me, it's a third generation counting from my grandfather who was a, a you know, a political prisoner from white, uh, white, uh, uh, terror. Um, so, uh, the, the pieces of information is very um, scattered. And, uh, but for me personally, it was because two years ago, um, well, what I witnessed is that um, some of the second generation of the survivors, um, they are getting really old. And um, I, my professional life is a gerontologist, uh, something mm-hmm. somebody work uh, in long-term care industry. Mm-hmm and a professor as well, I noticed many of the survivors or families or descents, they were having a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, post-traumatic uh, kind of syndrome um, mm. buried down for maybe 50 years. Uh, I use my mom as an example. Uh, growing mm. up, um, like, you know, like all, a lot of Taiwanese families, when we go to uh, go into a house, we take shoes off, right? A lot mm-hmm. of Taiwanese family, we mm-hmm. do that. We take shoes off mm-hmm. at home. And for my mom, I couldn't understand for the longest time that um, sometimes if like 
okay, I just need to grab a key or something I forgot. So I would like quickly sneak in, you know, with my shoes in and then just walk in and then grab something and walk out. And my mom would be become so mad and shouting at me. It's like shouting, like seriously shouting at me. It's like, why didn't you take the shoes off and everything? And for longest time, maybe like 40 years, I couldn't understand why. And uh, it wasn't until maybe like 10 years ago, I sort of like put two events together. It was because when she was six years old, that was when she witnessed all these soldiers with dirty clothes, with uh, filthy clothes, you know, like clo uh, dirty shoes and filthy clothes, and but with with a long gun, with a, like sharp knife in uh, in uh, in front of the guns, like twenty of them coming into my grandfather's house, uh, which was a very well built Japanese tatami house, and then they tried to find my grandfather and wanted to take my grandfather away. So all these dirty shoes and the soils and everything left so much mark on the tatami, a very, very clean tatami. And mm. that's her image of how uh, her father was being taken away. So oh I think goodness. this thing uh, is in her mind forever. And then so that's why she's really, really like getting mad every time when we uh, take, you know, we don't take shoes off immediately after we come back home. And then so in any case, to make the long story short, so I started to um, notice that some of the second generation still have a lot of uh, uh, scars in their mind. And then so that's why two years ago, I decided no matter what, uh, I'm going to take my time and then uh, try to, uh, based on what I can do, I can't really do much, but at least I can maybe like uh, trying to use some life review and then try to heal them uh, a little bit and let them sort of like speak about the story because some of them cannot even speak about their own stories or their horror or their scares forever. So maybe, maybe I can be the source to uh, let them at least talk about it. So that's why uh, I decided uh, to get involved again. Otherwise, uh, I haven't been really getting getting involved with Chudu A for a long time, uh, except maybe like during the Feb the month of February, attending events, memorial events, or um, you know, write something on my Facebook, and that's what I have been doing uh, until two years. Two years ago, I decided maybe I can help with the second or the third generation. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about why this has been such a taboo subject as Michi has brought up. What is it that happened to make people feel so afraid of this and uh, not be able to talk about it? I think that's a division among uh, Chinese who became refugees in Taiwan and and the people who were born and raised in Taiwan for generations, because they're actually from different uh, background. One has been ruled by Japan for 50 years, and the other one just went through World War II, hated the Japanese to their heart, to their bone. So that's, in a way, it's bound to have some kind of conflict because they just could not see eye to eye to each other. And uh, so even they have been... Um, safe in Taiwan after they escaped from China. The hatred toward Japanese was something that related to Japan that would trigger the, the anger and the hatred during the World War II. 
my family never talk about anything politics. So basically, we just live among relatives most of the time. We have some friends, but not many. And we never talk about politics. We never talk about there's a difference between Chinese and Taiwanese. And actually, when I was little, maybe I have a little bit uh suspicion, something that is not quite right. But I wasn't sure what, what is not right or what, what is, what it, I just feel kind of something, something that it's just not quite right. But I could not put my finger to it, honestly, because nobody talk about it. And in school, sometimes I see a teacher disappear and I feel it's kind of weird and strange. But of course, nobody talk about it. Why? A teacher that you think day in and day out just dis- disappear. Um, but you know, uh, when you were young, you play and you have a lot of homework to do. At that time, we do have a lot of pressure, and you don't really have time to explore or to question what's going on. And I was a very, very quiet child. I never question anything and never say anything, even I feel something. This is Su An. Um, when when um, all these people, like Wei Wei said, they were uh, many of them were very young. I have a friend um, growing up in junior high school. Um, we never knew that uh, our family had a similar history until maybe we were almost forty years old. So from junior high school to forty years, we never knew that. Um, uh, we also had some link with the, you know, two two A or white tarot. So my friend's mother was actually put in, uh, was put in Green Island. That's the uh, main mm-hmm. hub for the political prisoner when she was 15 years old, junior oh high school. And what she did was only to pass a book. Uh, her junior high school teacher said to her. Please bring this book to your neighbor after you go home. So when you go home, just pass this book to your neighbor. So the teacher asked her to deliver. She was basically a postman delivering this book. And obviously it was a taboo book that could not be, you know, circulated on, uh, in the public. So she was put in jail for 10 years, 15 years old, 10 years. And then plus when they get out of the jail, oh, nobody would dare to, um, have any association with them. I remember growing up, um, my father would host some of his friends who, who were all social elites um, who were put in prison for 10 or 20 years growing up. And then they would come to my house and then live for a long time, like six months or nine months. And then um, uh, it wasn't until really, really like uh, when I was really old, I guess, um, that I realized these are all political prisoners and then none of their family members would allow them to go home or even have any association with them. And then my father sort of like uh, took the, 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 the place to maybe, wow. yeah, took them in. So this is what happened. Yeah. And then for me, I what I wanted to say was that uh, because why it's such a taboo topic I think uh, associated with the to do eight was uh, the uh, martial law because in order to maybe stabilize the society, uh, Chiang Kai-shek in 1949 established called the what they call the martial law, and that it lasted 38 years. So 38 years of martial law 
means that you cannot say anything bad about the government or even like, for example, passing down or circulating a, a book that was not supposed to uh, be uh, in the public or uh, publish any kind of articles or magazines. 38 years is two generations not having the opportunity to talk about this. So until now, even though we've tried to talk about it, it was too long and the history for a lot of people very vague and depending on how you interpret it you know people have different political stand or viewpoint about it and then it's something that when like when we say when we try to talk anything about it the family becomes quarrel you know they they fight with each other about different views and that's why originally it was a taboo topic now it's a topic that even though we can speak about it, but we can speak so little about it, and then it becomes, you know, it's something that whenever each family talk about it, it's sort of unpleasant. So that's why it be, it's still a taboo topic. And then 38 years to me is two generations. So two generations not knowing the history, uh, it's really, really difficult to talk about this part. And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is a listener-supported podcast, and we want to take a moment to thank listeners like you for your generous contributions. You make our work possible. As the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast and a Golden Crane Award winner, we are dedicated to bringing you the stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. And if you haven't already, you can make a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash talking Taiwan. And it's very important to mention martial law and the white terror that ensued afterwards because there was a lot of um, suppression. People weren't allowed to express their ideas if they expressed any or criticized anything against the government. A lot of people were persecuted. So that's all a part, all related to this as well. I want to mention just something very quickly. It's not only because of, uh, it's not only publication or circulating anything. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. even about media. You know, there were about 800 songs, music being banned from uh, the society. So um, it's all, I guess the, the degree of uh, the influence is all professionals. I think, you know, arts, uh, media, creativity was all uh, banned because if you uh, uh, do any kind of creativity that uh, somebody, the government suspected you, that it has, has something to do with the Red Army or the, the communist or any kind of hint, um, that's taboo, that's uh, banned. So I think people become very, very conservative, like uh, Josephine said, you know, the, the easiest part is not to talk about it or not to associate with it and to, to just play safe. This reminds me of the well-known case of the writer who was imprisoned for nine years because of his Chinese language translation of a Popeye the Sailor newspaper comic. I'll share a link to the Taipei Times article that has a photo of the comic strip in question. This is Josephine. I also have several friends that actually directly were impacted by um, this Tutuwe incident. One of my very good friends, um, his father, when he was uh, probably just a year old, his father was uh, arrested, and then subsequently he was uh, he was uh, he was killed two years after in jail. And I never knew that. I never knew that until maybe twenty something years after one day. You know, I just it just somehow came up because 
because he his father passed away, so the grandfather actually had um, his uncle marry his mother, you know, in order to raise this oldest grandson. And then so so he he of course later called his um, uncle dad, but then you know mm-hmm. he it actually was his uncle. Mm-hmm. They were very close. They're a good family and. We were so close, and I never knew about the story until one day I I just asked his wife. I just said, "Hmm, was his father ill or something? You know, how did his father die?" And then she said, "Because of the two two eight, you know, he was he was caught, and then he, and then two years after he he died, and then from then on nobody talked about it. Nobody talked about it. That's it." End of the story. I, they and she said, if I didn't ask, she probably wouldn't even say it. And I didn't ask my, uh, you know, the husband who the family was actually the victim. I asked the mm-hmm. wife. The wife mm-hmm. was okay to tell me about this. Mm-hmm. It was just. I think people were just terrified, terrified, and you don't know how to deal with it. I think the the taboo topic. And the silence that surrounds it. Obviously, there's fear of death, but there's also fear of many other things that Taiwanese people have grown to respect, based on Confucianist values of living harmoniously.、Mm-hmm. So we try not to make waves with one another and make one another uncomfortable. Trying to respect authority, and of course, that doesn't work out so well when you're in a dictator kind of a society. Um, there's also just trying to save face. What if my family is associated with this this mark in society? It could lead to many other devastating consequences, like people not getting certain positions in society. When Suan and I worked on one of the、um, projects, there was one gentleman that you had mentioned, Suan. He couldn't get himself. To go to that position that he had earned rightfully, because he、mm-hmm. felt like that shame and stigma from his youth followed him.、Mm-hmm. So you're、yeah. talking about the work that you did with the Transitional Justice Committee. In preparing for that, we had a series of conversations,、mm-hmm. and I, I just remember some of the powerful effects generations later. These ripple effects of that shame and stigma from that time. And it was—it still continues to devastate the second generation, and、uh, maybe even their relationships with extended family members if they didn't have a、yeah. clear understanding about what was happening.、Yeah. It's hard to make sense of it when you're in Suan's mother's example, for example, like six years old, and no one really gives you a full picture of what's happening. You carry that confusion with you and possibly transmit that to the next generation.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second generation that you're talking about, just to clarify for my listeners, is the generation after the generation. The first generation is the one that directly experienced two two eight, and then、mm-hmm. the second generation is the one after that. Can you elaborate a little bit more about this gentleman that you're talking about? What do you mean? Do you mean that it was hard for him to go back to his place of work or something when you're talking to him about his past experience? I wasn't clear on that. This gentleman, his father was a, a well-respected teacher, and obviously back then, two to eight,、um, a lot of、uh, teachers, the social elites were killed. 
So uh, all he oh, okay. So growing up, he had this. Uh, uh, he was he felt he was stigmatized because uh, a lot of times, and then you know, uh, the teacher, other teacher, would say, "Oh, his father did something bad," you know. So that's why he was put in jail or killed. I think was killed. And then um, so uh, he never knew why, because from many uh, other people or even his uncle's uh, uh, voice. Uh, they always said that your father was such a kind person, was such a good teacher. All he heard was good. Mm-hmm. But why is a society or anybody in at his work paint, painted him as a bad person? Mm. But he still, I think, at the time, uh, as Michi said, for the second generation of this kind of family, they are just trying to survive. So he worked mm-hmm. very, very, very hard. Mm-hmm. He got accepted to a civil position, a government position. Uh, but on the day when he was supposed to report to the government post, he decided not to go because he said, I think if I went, uh, people are still going to talk about my background and then I'm not going to have a good uh, life because everybody will think that I come from a very bad family. So he decided he to, to also study hard by himself and got into a very famous a uh, company, private company, the best company in Taiwan at the time. And then he was still saying that, oh, you know, when I entered in, people look at me very strangely. You know, people think that I uh, ask them what kind of family you, you come from and all that. So this shadow, I think, followed him all the way until he was really getting old. And then he decided maybe at our session trying to really open up and then trying to figure out why is this conflict? You know, one side tell me my father is good, but then the other side is that I'm sort of like shadowed by my father all the time and affected my career development. So is this this hate and love uh, um, conflict? And maybe Michi can explain it better uh, as a psychologist. So I think a lot of second generation in general, when I uh, we did the life review session, they were trying to figure out whether their parent well, were trying to maybe come to term with their parent, I guess. Um, there was uh, this guy, and then there's another guy. It's kind of like what Josephine said, Josephine's friend. You know, Josephine's friend's father was killed. Real uh, biological father was killed. But he had a he had a stepfather two years ago, but everybody insists, probably everybody insists him to call him father as a natural father. So there are many second generations whose a registered father is not their real father uh, on the uh, ID card. Their registered father is somebody who uh, decided to take a place uh, for their original father. <laughs> so all these people, when they're getting old, they really wanted to find out who their biological father was. They wanted to like come to terms with, why do I have to recognize somebody who is not my biological father as a real father and why can't I say that I have a real father you know so a lot of second generations they have this conflict in their mind and then try to figure out why so yeah maybe Michi can elaborate more yeah Mm -hmm. so the taboo can be a societal taboo as we've already established but it can also be internalized and sometimes that's even more powerful because it's invisible especially when it remains silent So you can still internally oppress yourself by all the things that we were socialized with when we were younger. And I think that's what we saw a lot of with the second generation. It was actually pretty heartbreaking as they're trying to discover. And then when they approach this understanding, they also don't know 
quite what to do with it because maybe it's the six-year-old version of them trying to now process this information. Um, and just to clarify about the case that you're giving, the gentleman who didn't feel worthy of these positions that he had rightfully earned, his relationship with his father, was it because people looked negatively at his father because his father was either persecuted politically or had some kind of involvement in 228 or subsequent events? Absolutely. I mean, it seemed that way to me, and so on you can say so if it's different, but it seemed like it wasn't isolated to this particular gentleman. Just if your loved one is taken away, it's almost like there's a mark over your house. Yeah. And so it would then become very difficult for you to socialize with your classmates in the case of this gentleman. Sure, because then the whole uh, society perceives the family as marked. Right, and now somehow. you have access cut off to different professions. Mm-hmm. Right, and like what, when we say the surveillance is everywhere, and then it's recorded everywhere in their in, a, in mm-hmm. their uh, register system. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, you know the secret agents, I guess. Yeah, uh, we call uh, yeah. So whenever def- you report to a job, um, they can just find it's sort of like a security check, you know. So mm-hmm. it's marked mm-hmm. yeah. background, yeah. And some of them are official. Uh, I guess, agents, but many folks in society also privately profited. And some of them might have been swayed by financial influence. You mean to report on people or to mm-hmm. either to survey or report on other citizens? I remember, was it Josephine and, and Weiwei both had personal accounts of hearing people proudly proclaiming that uh, they yes. were yes. technically, they were informants but they yes. considered themselves neutral actors because yes. they were strictly being employed. Mm. They they gained uh, a profit from it, you, so it was a job. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, my uh, one of my yes, one of my friend has actually said that. He said, "Oh, you know, he was proud like, you know, that that he did that." I Meaning I, I, I could earn some extra money from doing this. Or yes, 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 yes. So that's a translation. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But um, I think basically what two two eight it was the uh, it was an incident, and that just shows all the unfairness of the society. That why would that you know it's not because of that person or whatever. It's an overall overall society trying to trying to reflect the unfairness mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. the KMT came by. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, of course, this is, had nothing to do with to do a, uh, that I'm going to give an example, but that was the later year when all these social movement uh, continues ongoing. I mentioned about my professors. They used, to, they have to form, they're all attorneys, they have to form a in the attorney's association in order to come out to compete uh, the election, to do the election, because all these Taiwanese are so conservative and so um, so afraid to be a government employee or coming out to be in a, uh, you know, a, a mayor or, or for the election. No one would suggest. No one would support you. No organization would support you. So they have to be some kind of membership. So Chen Jisheng, Dan Geixing, then he formed this Bijiao Fa Xue Hui. So that's how how all these uh, later on actually um, all these Su Zhen Chang, Xie Chang Ting, you know, all these eventually came out from that organization. And 
because of this, it's just, I think it's just the social justice. There's no justice for the society. And then two to a happened. And then, of course, it became worse and worse for, what, 38 years? At that time, when, when they have to run for elections or when they have, uh, they have certain quota for certain uh, pref, um, provinces, you know, under KMT, there's 35, right? 35 provinces of Republic of China. Taiwan is one of the third 35, okay? So Taiwan can prepare three people to be elected. Every province can have three candidates. And how many people in the rest of the 34 president, uh, uh, provinces in Taiwan? You know, so they would occupy what three times thirty-four is what census hundred, hundred, hundred and two. But then Taiwanese can only allow have three candidates, and all the white so-called white then can have more than hundred people. You know, that's how that's how they were classified and and suppress all the, the Taiwanese. And that that was, I I think there's just so many unfairness in the society. And after two to eight, and after this white terror and everything, that's why the the, the social movement just keep on going, keep on going. And two twenty eight in nineteen forty seven was just our symbolic symbolic beginning of it. Right. So just to clarify for my listeners, um, what you're talking about, Josephine, is before Taiwan became, after the Kuomintang came, this is the system that they put in place in terms of how the representation in the government, way, way before Taiwan became democratized in the 90s. Um, so we can see that there's like a huge imbalance in terms of who is represented in the government. Yes. And, and that was just a, an example in any mm-hmm. sort of you know position, government position, or any company, or whatever they use this as a as a guideline. You know, every province have your own representing group of people, and Taiwanese who had what eighty percent of the population is only yeah, which is mind boggling. If yes. you think about it today, right? Yeah. The Kuomintang came, they're on Taiwan, they're still using this system that represents China when they're in Taiwan and supposedly ruling Taiwanese, but then counting all these other provinces from China when they're actually in Taiwan. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's, yeah. it's you know, yeah. like like all these, what, Qinghai Sheng. I don't even know how many people from Qinghai were in Taiwan, you know, they also <laughs> have the equal number of it, you know. Yes. Yeah, there's something to put in perspective. Why do you think it's important to know and talk about 228? I can say a little bit about some other work that I've done as a consultant sure. for the Museum of Tolerance in mm-hmm. California's Beverly mm-hmm. Hills. Um, when I worked closely with Jewish Holocaust survivors, they said that the whole reason why they have that institution as well as others around the world is so that history won't repeat itself. Um, So on a broader level, hopefully that's the case. On a personal level, I see a lot of trauma and how that gets perpetuated intergenerationally. And that's a huge Mm -hmm. part of what Suan and I were trying to um, bring about awareness with some of the survivors, letting them know that if they had any reactions or unresolved feelings about their family history, that that's all natural and a part of what happens to families. Um, so hopefully, 
by just talking and educating ourselves, we can avoid having history repeat itself, but also that there can be healing on an individual level and interpersonal level with others, just like how we can see that happening in other parts of the world. Yeah, that's interesting. I was reflecting on this because I was reading up on in Canada, they had the residential schools and they also um, last year discovered a lot of bodies of indigenous children that were in unmarked graves. Not exactly the same, but uh, the similar in the sense that it's important to teach this in the schools and to let the society know about this, that this happened. And even though it is a kind of shocking and shameful thing that happened, but to understand why it happened and that it shouldn't happen again, this kind of discrimination or injustice. Through my learning of the 228, uh, even it's very difficult for me to see other people's suffering and the persecution. And and I was thinking, my goodness, I have such a good life, you know, in general. Yeah, I I, I was horrified that I I did not know a lot of Taiwanese. I I know that some Chinese also were persecuted for political reasons. But still, it's very shocking to me that... uh, why I have enjoyed my my youth or enjoy my life in Taiwan, I have good memory of my home country, and there are people who suffer so much for for no reasons. Then that so to learn about it, I kind of open my eyes that uh, I. I need to learn about the injustice in this world. I need to know this. Even I could not lift a finger. Even I could not do anything about it, like when I was younger. But I think we need to know that. I think I need to know that because it would. I I'm a very how do you say in 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 Mandarin. My heart is very hard. You know, it's. I never cry, I never shed a tear until later on in life. And I, I feel to understand there's an ju- injustice. I knew there's always suffering being a human being, but when there's an injustice being forced upon people to take away their life, to take away their livelihood, to take away their family, we need to, we need to be aware of that. Okay, we need to understand that. And so in a democracy, we can vote. We can vote for the people we know they are really doing things for the people, not just talking nonsense and spilling our lies and just being corrupt. And so I think it's important to to know the truth. I think that's that's what I learned is... It doesn't matter how hard it is to is to know the truth, especially when it's involved a lot of people, not just a few. For me, it's just that I probably wanted to do something for the second or the third generation. Um, I didn't realize how powerful all these uh, childhood experiences had uh, in their when they get old. You know, in their, how powerful these uh, uh, thing will impact their older. Uh, the end, sort of like a part of the very last end of their life. And then, so since I do a lot of work for uh, older, very old people, um, it really uh, 
help me do my work better because I didn't realize that many people perhaps having、uh, a trauma、uh, childhood. Uh, can such a can have such an impact in their own life?、Uh, what I mean is that、um, the Transitional Justice Commission、uh, is part of the project. Why we Michi and I were doing that life review group, we found out that the the survivors, you know, if they had thirty、uh, or twenty years of political prisoner, and then、um, the, those survivors, we call them first generation survivors,、um, they the the generate the survivors basically. Survive many a lot of survivors are very old now in their nineties,、mm-hmm. but they would not seek any help、uh, because they have such a distrust with the covert government, distrust and cut off from social, you know, uh, uh, connections, society. So they have no social engagement. They live in a very secretive life, and then also if they had any family later on, their wife or.、Uh, Mostly wife, but a few are husbands. They had to like basically live in a very dark life, and then so when they're getting really old, the wife takes care of a lot of long-term caregiving by the by herself. And this is something that I, I feel very um, uh, painful uh,、mm-hmm. even to talk about it because Taiwan has such a good long-term care system. We provide a lot of like home care, adult daycare, a lot of、uh, like home meals, everything for older adults. But、uh, most of these survivors would not ask for government anything or would not use any of the services because they are still living under horror. And then, so for me,、uh, I think it's important to do stuff at least very, very、uh, associate with my own work. And then I wanted to at least have let them have a better. Uh, quality of life at the very end of their lives. Yeah. So.、Mm, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, the isolation and、um, the distrust is really quite powerful. How it impacted them. Josephine, did you want to add anything?、Mm, I I think pretty much we had the、okay. same experience. You know,、yeah. we、uh, the, the distrust. I、yeah. think is、uh, it's probably the worst part.、Um, I I got involved with this、uh, not just because of my professor. In 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 2008, I believe I、uh, you know I was attending some meetings about preparing some 228、uh, program, but they were all scheduled over the weekend. So then that was when I decided that I wanted to have a event right on the date of 228 for so for people who. Who has the, who has this、uh, who the victims or people who were terrified? They have a place to go. They have a they have a mind to share、mm-hmm. with people that、mm-hmm. not just I have to do it a few days before. And when we mentioned that,、um, I got quite a few of people, you know, just echoed us and saying that oh, definitely we needed that. You know, you cannot say don't celebrate or don't think about this. Um, that day, you do it two days ago. You know, before two days before. So that's when we started doing that, and that's how I committed to do this. And I held this、um, concert.、Uh, we called. I I started it because my aunt actually. I probably knew my father's older sister. She was a Hakka poet.、Mm-hmm. She wrote a lot of.、Uh, she was outspoken. She used to write it in Japanese, and then.、Um, Later on, she changed it 
I admire her ability. I mean, she learned this Hanji and then started writing in Hakka. Wow! And she wrote a lot of uh, the poems regarding like how we were not like she was implying that I'm a bird that I love to sing, I love to talk, but I can't. I'm 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 putting in a cage. I can't sing my song. I cannot speak my language. You know, because mm. Hakka was a uh, uh, was, was a dialect, you know, you, you weren't supposed to speak dialect uh, openly. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so she wrote a, she wrote a poem about 228 because, she, because her uncle, which is um, related to my grandmother, I mentioned that um, Zhang Qirang, uh, so she, she constantly somehow dream about him. So she mm-hmm. wrote a poem about him. So she, when she knew that I started getting involved with all these events, she handed me the poem and asking us that if we could have a composed or something because I have I know a lot of musicians. So mm-hmm. that's how I came up this two to a commemorative concert. We called it the Spiritual Day of Taiwan. Taiwan the Xinling and that, that's that's the title of her. Home. And we started from 2008, and then, of course, last year I couldn't have it. And this year, I'm, mm-hmm. I'd like to bring this one to be that um, that program. I did it in concert as a concert because I I thought it's a softer touch. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have to bring it such a sharp or 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 deep cut in between people. You know, like like. Um, I, I want to bring this wound up. Let's talk about it. Let's dig it all up. But uh, the, during the concert, I have younger generation. Actually, quite a few of people came to talk about how they learned about 228. You know, I have Ho Chi Tai. I have Nikki. You know, the, the, consider like Taiwanese American in their 30s or 20s and came to talk. I think the youngest one we have, I think he must be 10 years old or something. (laughs) How he, how he knew about this program and everything. And I thought Mm -hmm. it was just a, a soft touch in, in, Mm -hmm. in my way of giving our society and hoping that people learn this incident through the concert, through the idea that we're sharing and we're talking Mm -hmm. and then, Mm And I try to do that in a bilingual, you know, English and Hakka, English and, and Mandarin, English and Holo, so that mm-hmm. you people, a younger one, can, you know, at least willing to come and share. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's interesting to know how you started the 228 concert. We'll share a link on TalkingTaiwan.com to a video of past 228 concerts organized by Josephine and sponsored by the Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. I am surprised that when I decided to do all these and get involved with all these, my parents and my family are all very, very supportive and mm. and they are all even so proud of it that um, they, they feel like that I am voicing for them. You know, they wanted to say, they wanted to express, but, you know, mentality-wise, they may still be too conservative or too restricted themselves. To You know, in their mind, they still, they're not to say that. But, but when I was doing it, I, I was very surprised that oh, my father always praised it, you know, saying, oh, you're doing 
the right thing you're doing. I'm, I'm happy you're doing it. My parents both are very, very encouraging. And I, I think that's what, how I feel like, although personally I wasn't, you know, I wasn't persecuted, but I was always very uh, open, you know, open-minded and outspoken considered in school. And maybe that's the reason my parents were sheltering, uh, sheltering me if I knew earlier, you know, I could have, <laughs> you know, been doing certain things. But then um, just like Weiwei, I thought I had a good life. And then I I, I was sad that I didn't, you know, I, I didn't do enough or I wasn't, you know, learning more enough about it. And I, I'm, I'm willing to, you know, putting my share and my passion to try to help whoever were victimized. Or, or scared or terrified, you know, you don't have to be physically being in being abused, you know, terrified. The people were terrified for ages. It's, it, it's really, really difficult time for older, older people. And we really need to le- learn the lesson from it. I don't think any human being should have that, should have suffered from that. Yeah, I really like to uh, comment on uh, Josephine's 2-2-A concert annually because I have attended, uh, I think, three or four years at least. I don't quite remember. But the the concert is is so touching. And uh, I could see the work that she put in is so impressive. So every time I went to the concert, even it's it's every year, but it's it's very it's also different. It's also a very inspiring event for the people who doesn't know about two to eight, but they maybe it will help them to have the motivation to learn about the event. Let's hope that that we can bring it back to the on site um, program. Yeah. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's so um, it's so sad. Yeah. Yeah, and I also wanted to have this conversation because this is a Talking Taiwan podcast and a lot of people know 228 today as a national holiday. 228 was declared a national holiday in 1998, but it's also interesting to know that it was almost canceled as a public holiday twice in 2001 and 2009. It's still a very touchy subject, you know, so as we've already heard a lot of us talk about and um, we also had a national holiday pretty recently in the U.S., Martin Luther King Day, just passed in uh, January. And so I thought also to make it a little bit more relatable to people who maybe there are some listeners who don't know anything about 228, what U.S. holiday do you think is comparable to 228? I believe Indigenous Peoples Day could be something comparable in terms of looking at um, what holidays to celebrate. For example, my university decided we're no longer going to be celebrating Columbus Day. But I know it's not a nationally recognized holiday uh, in terms of being a public holiday, so Uh we still have a ways to go. But it is important Uh to commemorate with an actual day. For example, why do we bother... Uh, pausing during 9-11 for Americans, let's say. Right. Wasn't that a really ugly time in our history? And mm-hmm. what do we gain from reflecting upon those that we lost? Mm-hmm. So I would say 
Indigenous Peoples Day is an opportunity to reflect like that. I know Martin Luther King Day um, could also be, but this year there was some white lash associated with that. So I don't know if we have a perfect day that reflects that either. I actually um, also uh, have a little bit thought about uh, when you bring up the subject about uh, being canceled uh, as a national holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, uh, to be, whether it's a national holiday or not, I, 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 I actually don't really like the atmosphere that Taiwan now, that at the beginning of the year, they started counting that um, the, the holiday that they would have this year, how they planned it and everything. And then because 228 usually is very close to the Lunar New Year. So I think the atmosphere could be a little bit different. It's, it's almost like it continues the, 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 the New Year holiday. You know the the atmosphere make me feel that way. I of course I I'm not in Taiwan now and and I I don't actually feel it. But when I look at all these posting or all these um you know me social media things posting it, people were you know trying to trying to uh, schedule their holidays and what they are doing and everything. It seems like they're missing the spirits, you know because. Um, so to me, whether it's a national holiday or not, um, probably not as important as we remember what actually happened that day instead of having a day off. You know, I, I think the meaning could be just misinterpreted. Well, it's interesting that you say that, Josephine, because I think that happens with a lot of holidays. Like, for example, in the U.S., the holiday that comes to mind is Memorial Day because everybody's like, oh, Memorial Day, we can have a barbecue, <laughs> we can like have fun. But, you know, what is the meaning behind Memorial Day? So I think it's a double-edged sword because You're on right. the one hand, You're it's like right. a three-day weekend yes, or something. But then on the other hand, it's like, but what is Memorial Day? Where did that come from? And if people care to know, then they can find out and maybe learn something that they didn't know. But Suan, I'm curious, what do you think? Because you're in Taiwan. Well, um, for young people, I guess, yeah, it is uh, an a, a extra day off. And then um, before pandemic, I guess a lot of people would travel abroad. You know, if you take a, a couple of days off, uh, it's five-day vacation. So a lot of people, because um, now it's official holiday. And then um, for a lot of, like, I teach in university, it's usually the week that... Uh, the semester, a new semester starts. So uh, since to do A is uh, off holiday, uh, that's one of the five days of the first week. So a lot of students don't even bother to show up the, during the first week of semester, you know, so because they're um, they have one extra day off. So, um, but <laughs> just um, to be more serious about it, um, I, I think it's I think it's two parts, I guess. For um, for people in the government position, uh, no matter what political stance you are, they have to uh, show their respect by putting up something, either it's a memorial or um, uh, some kind of recognition or something. But it come it becomes so symbolic and um, artificial to me. Um, I think uh, to me it's. Uh, whether you want to celebrate culturally or um, politically or 
more privately because um, there are people whose family are associated with to do a. I think there has to be a way for for the public to know that um, no matter what you want, how you want to how you want to uh, live that day, uh, please uh, maybe like uh, 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 have a, a, a few moment of silence or something, you know, in your heart or in your uh, daily life to think about there are a lot of people who are sacrificed. And then a lot of people who are social elites, like Josephine said, her teachers came out uh, to fight for uh, society. I don't think Taiwan's democracy will come. So um, to me, and those social elites were the ones, most of them, uh, almost all of them were the ones that very dedicated their lives professionally or um, um, socially to help Taiwan become better society. You know, so I think uh, the society owes a lot to these people. And then so uh, usually the way I, I don't want to say celebrate <laughs> memorial, <laughs> you know, it's, it's even, I can't to even memory. say that it's memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do, to do A is every year I, uh, during that week, I change my Facebook uh, icon to uh, to do A. Uh, and just to remind me that uh, this week is a week of uh, sort of like uh, paying tribute to those who sacrificed and uh, thank those people for doing so. And then hoping that their descents uh, can live um, in a, a little better life, you know, not having such uh, shadows or, or horrors or trauma uh, in them. And that's why mm -hmm. I think the tra Transitional Justice Committee is trying to do, uh, but I guess the project or the endeavor is so huge that um, we can only do so much uh, little by little. Next week's episode of Talking Taiwan will feature the work that Suan and Michi did with survivors and families of 228 through the Transitional Justice Commission. In preparation for this talk, I remember I joke a little bit with Felicia that um, the reason why I think it's important to talk about 228 again is because uh, two years ago, one student might ask me, what is 228? You know, is that a natural disaster? That's why we want to have a day, national day off, uh, a symbol for you know, all the natural disasters combined or something like that. That's when um, I felt it's uh, a sense of seriousness. You know, I think, oh, my God, if you don't even know what 228 is and associate it with, it, with a natural disaster, I think uh, the society has to do something about it, I guess. Yeah. Right. And just to clarify, as you mentioned before, in Taiwan, whenever they had some natural disaster, some earthquake, they would name it 921, September 21st. That's why the student had this perception. My father was very passionate about this topic. And I think having the holiday and memorial sites gave him permission to share that with the family. So right before he passed, he made it a point to do a family, almost like a pilgrimage. And he sat us down. And so I could tell he really wanted to start sharing. Unfortunately, oh, wow. we didn't know that. He mm. wouldn't be with us much longer. Otherwise, I probably mm. would have tried to record his history. I think he would have had more intimate knowledge of mm. whether or not our family was involved and, and how it affected us. Um, but it was it was really important for him to be able to go to a place because I think previously he felt like we weren't supposed to talk about it. Yeah, I agree with what Michi say. Um, it's important uh, not 
just to learn 228 in a textbook because I'm sorry, it's really boring just to <laughs> read the textbook, okay? And personally, myself, I read a lot of, um, I watch the films. I watched, uh, I read about the biographies of the 228 victims and their families. And I read a book, analyze how the event started and what triggered the event and what's going on, what's happening during the event and afterwards. So those things actually will help me understand about the 228. If I just read it from the text where I think I would just kind of yawn and say, oh, my goodness, I need to have remembered this for the examination. In recent years, there are a couple of films, uh, movies uh, that came out. Um, and I see my nieces and nephews, um, they talk about these movies. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, being movies, sometimes you had to exaggerate or a little, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the history is mm-hmm. not 100% uh, correct. Mm-hmm. But um, for instance, like um, there recent years, there was a, a movie called Fan Xiao, and it's talk about mainly more about white terror. You know, a class, mm-hmm. high school classmates who disappeared, and you know, uh, and, and they were trying to look for her and why she disappeared and all that thing. So um, I don't, I haven't watched the movie because I heard the movie is. Uh, uh, quite sad you know so um even i have two nieces and one was like very like highly recommend this movie for anybody who wants to know about the history uh but another uh niece is like oh no i'm afraid because i heard it's really sad and horror you know something like that so um in any case um i think movies or uh comic books recently uh they are uh, they are coming out uh, to talk about 228 so yeah I think it's a good way to educate young people. Before we talk about like how T2A is being taught now in the schools, which also is a controversial issue because there's been a lot of disagreement about how to do the textbook reform. I was wondering for those of you that grew up in Taiwan, what were you guys taught about in history class? Did you learn any part of Taiwan's history or what was in your textbooks? Well, I'm 65, so when I was in elementary school or high school, I think for Taiwan, we, we learned, well, I'm not very good in history, put it this way. <laughs> I'm one, <laughs> I, I was one of those that hate to memorize everything. So mm-hmm. when everybody was good at history and Chinese and geography, I was better in English and math. Mm-hmm. I, I was so lazy. And, um, <laughs> and for history, uh, from... I don't think we really learn much about Taiwan other than um, you know, about the, uh, and, uh, about the uh, Japanese occupying Taiwan. Oh, that was, yeah, that was pretty much about it. I don't think, of course, we study how Jiang Kai-shi, how, how great he was when he was a young boy, that he studied the fish swimming, you know, up, uh, up, uh, what, up on the stream or something that was ridiculous. But uh, anyway, I don't recall anything about Taiwan's history. I don't. How about you, Weiwei? We are we are closer in in you know in our in our the age than in school experience. I don't think we learn much. A lot. Of, we were joking. We all know about Yangtze River. We all know about Yellow River, and then not much kids know about Tamsui River in Taiwan or 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 you know Zhuo Shui Xi. People don't know. 
you know, it's 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 funny. We're so Chinese. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so long ago. What did I learn from the history? Because I read my history book from junior high. I forgot what I read in elementary school. But, but I remember from junior high to high school, I think I read about it's the same thing. That's what I remember. Okay. And, uh, and what are the same thing that I read about the history? I think I probably learned about the, all those dynasty changes in China through different hands, through different kings. And uh, in Taiwan, I only heard about the Japan occupy uh, Taiwan for 50 years. I think that's all I know. The same thing with the geography. You didn't learn anything about geography uh, about Taiwan, you know, the lot of town and cities. And uh, I, and we learned about a railroad and we had to memorize the railroad in, in China. It was like, right now, if I look back, it's so ridiculous, isn't it? Josephine is 65. I am almost 55. So 10 years younger, we still learn the same history, Chinese history. So um, wow. I don't remember learning any Taiwanese history besides uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, how, how good Chiang Kai-shek was. And then he uh, actually helped us uh, become, here is the savior. He's a savior because otherwise we would have been still under the Japanese empire, you know, and how bad Japanese was and things like that. Um, not only about history, we also learned like uh, what Josephine said, our geography was all about China. So uh, we learned, we know how many like interesting things in 35, 34 province and how the railroads uh, go in China. But we don't know what the, uh, what kind of rivers or uh, where our railroad you know, system goes in Taiwan. I thought that we could also talk about what is actually being taught about 22A currently. And um, I did get my hands on an excerpt from a high school textbook that shows what is actually being taught about 22A in the current textbooks. I have a copy of, of that textbook here. I think it's a very, very general... Well, again, I... <sighs> I'm going to talk too much about the whole thing because that has a lot to do with the education system in Taiwan too and, and all the teachers and everything. So whoever put out the, the, the textbook, the, the text, I think every year is changing. I think uh, from what I read, I thought that was, uh, I was under that impression that they actually have this uh, uh, committee to talk mm -hmm. about this. And then I think every year there's people trying to change it to so-called improving it. And whether it depends on what side are you on, then, then whether you are improving or not, is uh, it depends on which side that you stand at. Like Josephine said, it all really depends on the teachers, how, what kind of angles the teachers emphasize. Because I think for high school uh, students, uh, I don't. I don't think the students will be able to uh, think critically. Um, having different angles, uh, the interpretation help, but it also depends on how the teachers uh, lead the discussion. I think this kind of thing, if we only think of it as uh, uh, words, and then you try to memorize as the way we we learn history in our our time. I don't think it's helpful at all. It's uh, having the benefit of uh, reading from different perspectives 
and having a good discussion about what you think about these different perspectives, I think that will really help if the、uh, history were taught that way. So,、um, yeah, I guess it depends on high school、uh, teachers and how they in- interpret and lead a discussion. And like I said, if the high school、uh, teachers, if they knew more about the background, had really studied two to eight, I think the teachers will be able to lead the discussion well. And if not,、um, I've also heard that high school teachers, not knowing so much about,、uh, not to, not knowing much about two to eight, and、uh, even not wanting to touch this、uh, subject, sometimes the teachers will say to the students, like, "Oh, you just read it by yourselves and skip it, you know, without any kind of discussion." And that would be really unfortunate if you know the teachers did it that way. So, it all depends, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier, Weiwei, you had shared some feedback, but that wasn't on the recording. So, did you want to share your thoughts after you read the excerpt? Well, I think the textbook they had to、uh, organize in a very、uh, pr- a brief and precise、uh, paragraph, so、uh, student can memorize and they can have a test on it. I think that's the purpose of, of the textbook, and、uh, of course, it's important to. Uh, teach about the、uh, Taiwan's history, and unfortunately, textbook is a lot of times for the test purposes, not really to educate people in depth. That would,、uh, but I think the teacher plays a, a big role on this. How they teach the event,、uh, because textbook, the black and white words, those are are not something that's alive. A, a, his, a history teacher, when they teach the historical event, they need to make it make the student feel it's alive. Even it it happens a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, but it it makes the students feel alive. They know because that's a that reminds me how、uh, I and my、uh, daughter learned、uh, American Civil War together because we went to a lot of movies about Civil War. We even sat through four hours movie to watch the Civil War. I was so surprised, both of us, including her. <laughs> Well, Felicia, earlier you mentioned about、yeah. Martin Luther King.、Yes. I think how Americans learn about him also、uh, is really critical about how you know people interpret his his role. I guess you know people can say that he was a great leader, a visioner, you know, a human right fighter. But、mm-hmm. if if somebody want to portray him as a troublemaker, that could be also you know、uh, possible. So I think any kind of this. Uh, kind of anything about human rights justice. I think it's really important how、uh, teachers or mentors、uh, lead or guide young people、mm-hmm. how to think about these kind of things. I think、yes. teachers in Taiwan are very re- well respected. They're very hardworking, especially for、mm-hmm. the wages that they garner. I, I just have a lot of respect for them,、um, and I also feel like it's a huge challenge when your textbooks. Are、um, have such a brief snippet of history,、mm-hmm. so I would actually recommend、um, immersive style learning. We have some great museums, and those are、um, adequate just to give people not just factual information, but also an insight as to how it impacted some of the daily lives of folks. I know I've. Brought students over there from the U.S. and it was deeply disturbing but very eye-opening, and they walked away with a very different view of Taiwan 
after seeing oh, that museum. Very, yeah, it's so interesting, Michi. It makes me think about like things like the Holocaust Museum. And I think I recently saw something that there is some kind of a museum in Taiwan that gives some kind of interactive experience with the white terror i'll have to share that in the show notes that's quite interesting so yeah perhaps there's several trips yeah yeah and they're they're really wonderful uh, i know mm -hmm. taipei has a couple of spots that are very meaningful around all these events um but i know green island is a very solemn place that people mm -hmm. oftentimes go mm -hmm. to there are several places you can go to like the Jingmei Prison Museum in Taipei for an experiential learning experience. You can actually walk into one of the prison cells. You can walk into the court of law that people got brought into. I guess they were mock trials. Mm -hmm. You can see samples of the kind of food that they were subjected to for all the time that they were there. You know, it's funny that the... Uh, I used to uh, sing chorus when I was in college. And then all of a sudden, one day, just say, you can't sing because that was the the Green Island. And then you can't sing that song. You cannot sing uh, yeah, because they were prohibited. It was, it was such beautiful music, but then just white terror. That's it. It's just... Uh, and then we all have to sing, you know, it's all praying Chiang uh, Kai-shek. We all had to sing that kind of song. Now I can't even hear, listen to the recording. It's just so yeah. horrible. I want to commend you, Felicia, for taking on a taboo topic, but also to the listeners that are willing to even hear this because it's not a pleasant topic. And yet it, it's part of our history. It's part of world history. I hope it can not just be acknowledged because we know what happens to survivors when things aren't acknowledged, like the Armenian genocide. Um, but I hope that we can learn from it and, and grow as, as people. And I think that there's ways where we can heal one another when we start to have an awareness as well as discussion and also planting seeds of hope to prevent this from happening, not just within Taiwan, but in other societies and other communities. We see a lot of conflict happening in the world. And so for me, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, even if what's happened to my family remains a mystery. So thank you very much for tackling this. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Great comment, great comment. Yeah, I I also wanted to say something. Um, come, you know, having uh, lived half of my life in the states and a half now in Taiwan, uh, like 1947 when 228 happened, and subsequent uh, the next 50 years maybe, um, we didn't have the technology as it is. So um, a lot of things were buried or could not be found. But now I think uh, good and bad with the technology, I think it's easily that we can Google something and then uh, find a, a quick explanation of 228. But um, um, we can also uh, quickly ignore it as, as well. So um, like Michi said, how conflict or uh, how quickly the society is changing in Asia, 
sometimes I worry that if we don't know the history well and we don't know how to really learn from each other or see from each other's uh, perspectives. Um, uh, for instance, like Weiwei mentioned about her family, uh, even though she's, you know, from Chinese, she's a Chinese descent, but um, she sees it, if she's willing to see it from a, a different angle, she knows uh, why these things happen, and then uh, she can become a more uh, uh, sympathetic or um, compassionate. Uh, compassionate person. Yes. So um, sometimes I, I wish that in Asia, I think people will find, or in Taiwan, people will know more about it too, because... Uh, we sometimes talk about the tension between China and Taiwan and perhaps even Japan and Korea and Philippines. I think uh, I don't want another 228 to happen. So I think uh, I would encourage people to be more uh, flexible and then to open their eyes and then listen and, and see it from different people's uh, perspectives. And so maybe, maybe we can understand each other better. Felicia, it's my honor to be here too, to talk to all of you and then listen. It's really, it's the learning process every day, every time we talk, we discuss, and then we have the discussion. I am honored. Thank you. And thank you so much for all of you to be here sharing your stories and, you know, helping to create a little bit more awareness about what 228 is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank yes. you. And thanks the audience too. I've been speaking with Weiwei Chang, Michi Fu, Tsuan Kuo, and Josephine Pan about the 228 massacre. There's so much to cover on this topic. We only touched upon the subsequent martial law and white terror era of Taiwan, and didn't even talk about the blacklist. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese-American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese-Americans. Established in 1986, the foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchange between the Taiwanese-American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. If you enjoy this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.